Hello and welcome to the last episode of this season of Underpulse. I know, it's really sad. I'm sorry to our three listeners. You'll have to catch probably someone else next year, hopefully. Yeah, I think um, it's going to be promising. Um, I have but yeah. faith in the student group elections that didn't meet Corusy. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, but yeah, this week we're talking about something that's been on our radar for a long time. You know, we've Brexit. been wanting to discuss, though, no, not Brexit. Uh, we're talking about well-being. Yeah, um, it's been... Interestingly, it's sort of been, I think, on both of our radar for a little while. We've had a lot of talk about this whole millennial burnout idea, which is maybe an interesting conceptualization of well-being. Yeah, did you read the article? This is this article in BuzzFeed that was published in, like, January? Um, I'll admit that I haven't, but I've read the first few paragraphs and I've read a couple of response articles, but I'd be interested if you could go in and sort of explain kind of exactly what is burnout. Yeah, I think this is a question a lot of people have. Uh, I've been, uh, personally, I've been reading about it a lot because my partner was diagnosed with a burnout. Well, actually, I promise you can't really be diagnosed with a burnout because it's not in the in the book that's the Bible of, of psychological health and well-being. Um, but it's this idea, it's, it's a very vague concept. People have been trying to pin it down for a while. Some people say it's it's one of these vogue like concepts are just in vogue and it will be out of vogue in a couple of years and that don't really mark anything real that happens psychologically or biologically um to the extent where the symptoms of burnout could be completely different in a couple of years um and other people say no there's there's like sufficient grounds to see this as a proper medical condition but i think the major takeaway from from this debate and the article in buzzfeed is that it seems to be a problem that is very prevalent. Whatever the problem's exact boundaries are, is very prevalent among what people call the millennials. So that's us, I think. Okay, and what what exactly, if you were to categorize maybe the core themes, even if it's a slightly nebulous concept to begin with? Yeah, so what people report and what I've been seeing is that there's... The article talks about this particular thing where... Um, you're juggling a lot of different tasks. You're doing really well um, objectively. So you're doing well at your job, at your studies, etc. But you're feeling like you don't have any time for yourself. And one particular aspect that it talks about a lot is small tasks that you just can't do. Like opening a letter that you think might require some action, which is really a minor task you would perfectly be able to do because you got a degree and you're, you know, like there's nothing inherently difficult about it but you just can't get yourself to do it or sending this one email um and i think the significance according to the article in buzzfeed of this is that it it kind of points to the overload of tasks that we give ourselves and i think also a little bit to the significance that we attach to every task because in general these things these small things are not you know that like i said they're not what makes you burn out or not but it's the whole package of the things you want to do the things you need to do and the way you feel you need to do them and and i think this is where the generational aspect comes in because i think there's this notion of millennials as generally perfectionists and mm, not really self-reflective um not taking themselves a little bit too seriously if that makes sense yeah i find this concept really interesting perhaps the idea that 
it, although it does analyse individual behaviour, I do quite like the idea that it takes it to a more structural sort of group. Um, it's not, I mean, a lot of analysis has often been on the on the onus on the self, right? Self-betterment, mm. um, self-help in some respects, right? Yeah. Um, that you need to correct the way that you yourself view yeah. or internalise things. But this, and we can talk about whether the whole generational aspect of it is super helpful, but the idea that it's made it more than an individual thing, right? It's made it, it's made it something that's widely shared in a more social structure. I actually think it's probably quite helpful in analysing it because it allows us to analyse the inputs that make people feel like mm. this rather than just how people interpret them. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And I think uh, a lot of people actually point towards individualism as the source of much of these problems this idea that even though you are you were born in a time where there was no major health risk you're from a relatively well-off background you're intelligent you have all these privileges that maybe other people in the past or other people right now didn't have um the mentality of this is your life you can do whatever you want that actually brings with it a lot of pressure instead of the freedom that maybe our parents thought that idea would bring with it. And so it's all about you making yourself better. And I think, I mean, we see this at LSE. This is something that bothers me personally very much in some of the communication at LSE from LSE Live, like newsletters, like how to build your own brand. I just want to puke um, because I don't want to be a brand. But... And I don't think I have the potential to be a brand. But I think in general, this narrative of individualism is often seen as one of the major causes of of these problems. That's interesting. And I think this is sort of the only aspect of this that I really know. I mean, I'm at LSE. This is my first and only university. I know that you've had different experiences. Do you think that this was shared for your undergraduate institution or even the Netherlands as a whole? Do you think it's a universal picture or do you think it's something that you felt much more acutely here? Yeah, so I think this is an interesting question because like you said, the generational analysis of it might be very helpful because it might point to real problems and real patterns in a certain group of people. But I do feel like there's a lot of, if we do take the um, the, the macro level of analysis here, um, that that is also problematic because there's a lot of differences in culture and a lot of differences in mindset. Like I'm from the Netherlands and there's more of this idea of, well, we're all in this together. Even though we've had quite a conservative government for the past couple of years, I think there's less of a narrative of self-betterment. I mean, it certainly exists and it certainly has been one of the causes of my partner's burnout like we've talked this through a lot and it's the pressure that comes with this idea that you have to always challenge yourself and get better it certainly exists but i feel like it's way more pronounced here and i feel like when we were talking about universities and the particularities of different universities there's something about lse and the studies that one can do here and its history and the way it's geared towards the labor market and not so much to knowledge in and of itself, at least that's how I see LSE, that might make this mindset more pronounced 
I think that's a fair point. I, I think it it also comes down to, I, I mean, knowing a lot of friends at other universities and none of them are by any means perfect and there's there's a hell of a lot of problems at all of them, but it does feel particularly acute in some senses here. It's been a major debate on campus as well over the last, well, since I've been here, so for the last three years, and I know that you've noticed it quite a lot um, in the last year since you've been here, but I mean, the campaigns for the student elections recently, um, not to bore anyone with them, but um, they were very focused on well-being. Yeah. A, a lot of campaigns also focusing on mental health provision, which people see mm. LSE as um, really failing on. Yeah, this is an interesting point, and it's one that I've been thinking about a lot as a student who did not particularly want to live in London, um, knew that she wouldn't be in the best place in London, was a bit afraid of the student debt that studying at LSE entails. One of the reasons that still swayed me and it still convinced me to actually go to LSE was the idea that a world-class institution like LSE would have the right services in place in case I do really find myself lost. And to find that this is not really the case is quite disappointing. And I think um, that's one of the the issues we discussed is disparity between expectations and reality when it comes to well-being services with our first guest, who is outgoing community and welfare officer in the student union, Faye Brooks-Lewis. And we also talked to Professor Paul Dolan, who is a specialist in happiness. And we started off by asking Faye exactly what her role was. So there are like a variety of things that I do. Part of being a sabbatical officer means that you're like a trustee of the student union. So like a chunk of my time is taken up being like a director of the SU and the sort of stuff that comes with that. Um, There's also like a lot of time that I spend on committees and working groups. Um, LSE has more committees than you can possibly care to count. Um, So a lot of time can be spent going to those and they like vary from like the catering services user group to like education committee um so a lot of time is spent like prepping for those going to those and like advocating with students um while i'm at those and then there's also a certain amount of time that you have to like do the own the things that you want to do like what you ran to do ran uh to be in the position to do um so the things that i've done this year that like i really want to do a lot about improving wellbeing services and improving accessibility and support for disabled students and things like that. Well, over the past couple of weeks talking about the wellbeing services, we've seen a lot of complaints and I've only been here for one year, so I don't know Mm -hmm. if this is a recurring thing that happens every year, but um, I was kind of shocked by the amount of complaints online and also elsewhere about Mm -hmm. LSE's wellbeing services. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you recognize this as being uh, an especially important thing right now or has this been a stable problem for the past? That's an, I think that it has historically been a problem at LSE. I, unfortunately it is not a new problem. It's a problem that people have experienced for years and years. Um, I think that there is more of an impetus within LSE now to actually do something about it. But from an SU perspective, it's something that we've been campaigning about for years. We did a welfare survey in like 2016 that came out with all these recommendations that LSE should do. Um, so that's like three years ago. So it's not like new in any way, I don't think, no. And what are the main problems that you, that you see? What kind of things 
do people struggle with most at LSE and feel and they feel are not addressed properly? I feel like in terms of mental health problems that people experience, it's like very much like anxiety and depression are the like key things. But I feel like I don't know, there's a wider question there of like what the problem with the culture of LSE is, which I think is a lot more of a nuanced answer than just like, oh, someone has depression, if that makes sense. I don't think that's like, like, yeah, sure, that's one person's experience, but there's a whole like factor of things that go lead up to that, if that makes sense. So these recommendations that you mentioned, do they also, did, did they also talk about the general culture of at LSE and how it might be changed? Well, yes, they did. I think that people's, like the posts that we see on LSE Love of like complaining about people's experience of the counselling service are very much, or like my perspective of them, are like the end stage of a problem, if that makes sense. Like I think there's a lot that builds up to that and that feeds into that LSE culture. Um, so like you have that culture at LSE where everyone who comes to LSE is super driven it's a really competitive place to get into and everyone is very intelligent and very competitive and sort of that culture amongst students like contributes to people's poor mental health because i I remember being a student and like not being able to go to a lecture one year not one year one um week and like asking someone's notes and they're just like no i won't check your notes (laughs) it's a very lse mindset and i think like that sort of mindset contributes to this problem I think then you have the mindset or not the mindset but like the way that academics or like the yeah academic rigor at this institution that I hate that phrase because it feels like academic rigor comes at the expense of a student's well-being and student's experience but you have like I was talking to a student um last week who was talking about they have like weekly assignments and they come for part of their like a certain percentage of their grade and they were just having like a really off week, weren't able to complete this assignment, the weekly assignment by the deadline. And their department was just like, no, we don't give extensions. Like, you just you just have to cope with the late penalty. It doesn't matter what's happened this week. So you have like those sort of things, like the academic policies and practice that reinforce this negative culture at LSE. And then it's understandable if you're in this like place where like you can't, people won't share the notes, you can't get extensions, etc., etc. That like then you have the problem like you start to have like more mental health difficulties and think oh okay I'll reach out and then you have a negative experience with well-being service and it's just like the final sort of stage does that make sense yeah no that makes a lot of sense and that makes it worse actually to read these uh, posts and put them in that kind of context yeah and I think there's there's problems with the well-being services I think in terms of what people the people expectations that students have for them and what the well-being services will actually see people about are very different I think and I think that's partly the way the counselling service sells itself and it says like oh yeah these are the issues that people talk to us and they'll list like depression and then more serious things like suicide or something but then if someone's really unwell and feeling like that and goes to counselling service I've heard so many stories of people being like turned away and being like given a list of like oh with this is your problems are too severe like we can't help you here um, I do have sympathy with them in some way in terms of like what the counselling service can do from a risk and safeguarding point of view, but also to turn someone away when they're in that point where all that build up has happened and is just unacceptable in a lot of ways, I think. So yeah. maybe there's also a mismatch between what 
you're saying is it points to a mis- mismatch between what LSE is saying it's doing mm. and what it can do and what it actually can do. And yeah. so is there is there any I think a question will be here should LSE provide these services for more severe mental issues mm. or should it just change its promotion and be more real about what it can and cannot do? I think that it needs to work in closer partnership with like NHS services and I think it needs to like understand and I think there needs to be more of a like understanding of what its limits are and where people can go if it's beyond it, that people there needs to be beyond those limits. And I think it does need to be clearer about its, its like what it can provide because I don't think that it's helping anyone if people think that like they can go to the service and then it's nothing, there's nothing there or not nothing, but not what they're expecting. Um, but it is a hard, hard problem to think around and I don't necessarily know what the one solution is. Mm. Um, I mean, it's obvious even if you're here for a year that there is a problem. And mm. one of the things that bothers me myself uh, is this kind of constant nudge to be better. Mm. So like you get these newsletters that are saying how to build your personal brand, etc. And I don't want to, and I don't want to want to, mm. but then I still feel like I have to think about these things. How do I portray yeah. myself? Check my LinkedIn, you know, all these kind of things which I know may be helpful, but I just don't want to because I know it will give me anxiety. So do you think that there might be a very basic problem in, in communication in this kind of, the way LSE communicate, whether it's LSE Live or other kind of newsletters, the way they communicate with their students? I think there is. I think there is definitely a big problem in the way that LSE communicates to its students and the narrative that is around it. I think that example that you give of like um, culture of like, oh, I have to be better. I have to like do this, like excel at this thing more than I already am. It's like very typical, I think, of an LSE culture. But I don't think it is just a like communications problem. I think it extends like beyond that I don't think LSE is suddenly like turning around and doing a comms campaign about like let's all be positive about mental health and um whatever else like defeat stigma and I don't know self-care whatever um it's necessarily gonna do anything than just be a shiny like thing to distract people I think that we need to like think about where that mindset that communication that culture actually comes from which is a tricky issue Mm. no doubt yeah because as it stands i think what's confusing to me is that there's the two messages are given at the same time Mm. so minush would say in student forums and stuff that it's really important to give attention to to mental health and stuff and at the same time you have the constant input of something that is actually a different message that's Mm. saying you should focus on being better yeah and that kind of two-track policy for me that just seems very confusing that's not sustainable that's really in a way so one thing that LSE is working on at the moment and that I've been working on them with is um sort of developing a mental health and well-being strategy and part of that's come in like response to um sort of national work by an organization called UK which is like universities UK um and they've produced something called a step change framework which talks a lot about these things but the um main message of that framework that UAK um, provi- uh, produced was that like institu- that universities have to have a whole institution approach to mental health um, and I think that kind of picks up on what you're saying that if you're having 
one message going out but then not actually backing that up in the other ways that you do things or the other messaging that you put out then it's not gonna help if you don't make sure that the way you're talking to student is backed up with the services that you provide with the policies that you have with the practices that you have then you're gonna have that confusion you're gonna have students hearing one thing but then not feeling like it matches up to their lived reality i guess so one question since we're uh, about to get into exam period soon um i guess this is pending doom of exams (laughs) i guess this is one of the times when people experience most stress and uh, maybe anxiety related problems Mm -hmm. are there any specific things that you'll be doing or that are happening on campus that might help people uh, get through this um so throughout um exam period the SU have like a campaign that we used to call de-stress fest but we're probably renaming it this year but that's like that kind of more fluffy end of well-being stuff and like there's free copies and just like we're gonna have puppies on campus and stuff like that um which isn't by any means a solution to all the problems you outlisted but it's nice around exam time um so there's that and there's also in terms of the SU services we have an advice service um that can help with say if you're in your exams and your health is suffering and it's really impacting the way that like you're impacting your assessments they can help advise on extenuating circumstances and sort of appeals and processes like that um so yeah if students that kind of support it's also that and we've seen a very specific approach here from this university, but we also spoke to Professor Paul Dolan. As Flo said, he's an expert in happiness and well-being, and we wanted to take a slightly broader approach. So the first question that I asked him was, what exactly is happiness? What is happiness? <clears throat> well, about two and a half thousand years of ethical argument haven't hasn't resolved that uh, fundamental question, so I'm not going to do it in the next two and a half minutes. But for me it's in our experiences it's in what we do it's in what we do day to day moment to moment it's the pleasure and the purpose that we experience from our daily activities things that we find on the one hand fun and on the other hand fulfilling and so happy lives for me are ones that contain the right balance between pleasure and purpose and it's for each individual to work out what that balance is for them you place a lot of emphasis on education and that role in producing happiness and also education's um, stance on pushing people to always be more and be better. In what sense is this uh, perhaps problematic? So, I mean, I think the first thing to say about education is that some of it is good for you. I mean, it'd be silly to say that, um, well, it might not be silly, but it would appear from the evidence to be silly to say that to have no education at all is good for you. Um, there appear to be increasing returns to lower levels. It's just that the returns at higher levels of education are a little more questionable. It's worth saying that we haven't got randomised controlled trials where we allocate people to higher education or otherwise, which would be the perfect way to establish a treatment effect of education. But the correlations are interesting, at least. And and that is that, you know, you uh, by the time you get to degree, masters, certainly PhD, you know, it's kind of, you have to ask yourself why you're doing a PhD if you're interested in being happy. And there's an interesting question around then what society values. And you also mentioned the kind of aspirational uh, element to that in there as well, is that, you know, it's perfectly fine for um, 
significant numbers of people to go to the university, it's also perfectly fine for significant numbers of people not to. And there, there becomes this arms race of having more and more and more and the expectation therefore that you will go to university and somehow your life is ruined and you're a failure if you don't and the evidence um, doesn't support that claim so uh, both at the individual level and at the societal level it's questionable whether we need you know kind of as much higher education uh, as we have at the moment. How do you see this relating to LSE? I know that we're sat here overlooking Lincoln's Field on campus it's got some of the lowest student satisfaction in the country <coughs> Um, what lessons do you think this university itself can learn? Well, it's an important question about student satisfaction at the LSE and the answers to that are multiple. I mean, there's never a simple um, answer to anything, really, and it's certainly not just one thing. But just pursuing this education and aspiration issue, I think a lot of students, in my experience, and I have much more experience of teaching master's students, I ought to say, rather than than undergraduates, but... We come to to the LSE with these huge expectations placed on them, sometimes by themselves, often by their families, who expect them to do well. Um, but it's not just do well, it's then to then um, go and do the kinds of jobs that their parents or society thinks they ought to be doing afterwards in order to be happy. And kind of setting themselves up for a fall to some degree, because um, often those jobs don't make people happy. And the sacrifices required in order to be successful in those jobs mean that you give up happiness, as I defined it earlier, right, in terms of what you do, your experiences of pleasure and purpose over time. And if you're constantly chasing more and more and more, it's a really cliche thing to say, but your destination um, kind of subsumes the journey and the journey needs to be pleasurable and purposeful as well. And and you know sometimes i think students kind of lose sight of the fact that what they do both at university and beyond needs to feel like it's pleasurable purposeful actually at the time and not just in some expectations of what the future might hold that's interesting there seems to be a lot of um focus on both the social structures and the individual students and their Mm. expectations and how they act do you think that it's down to us as students to alter our mindsets or do you think there are institutional things that can be done to try and increase welfare? It's a really good question, and you'd expect my answer to say a bit of both, wouldn't you? And uh, I think it's right that it's a bit of both. I think, I mean, there's a number of different sort of issues. I think, you know, the expectation, I mean, I think students are, it seems increasingly kind of having these expectations that are just beyond, you know, sometimes it's not beyond them, but they're just, it's constant, like more and more and more and more and more for themselves and placed on them by society, by their parents. So, so, but it's very hard for the, for an individual student to swim against that tide, right? Very easy to say, but much harder to do. So it does require some collective action um, in order to kind of change that aspiration or expectation. Institutionally, I think there are, there are those and other sets of issues include, uh, too, which include, um, how disadvantaged students perform in elite universities. So LSE, for example, does a very good job. We should be very proud, quite rightly proud, of widening participation, having students from lower socioeconomic status coming to the university. We do better than any other elite university in the UK on that measure. But then there's a question of what we do to them once they get here. Um, And still, um, all universities, LSE included, kind of expect the student to fit a particular mould. 
and you either do one of two things you either you either fit in and so hopefully can succeed although there is still an attainment gap between um those from uh higher and lower socioeconomic status backgrounds or you leave um and so you have to kind of assimilate so, so it's a sort of interesting sort of irony almost that we we celebrate this diversity on entry and then we kind of compel everybody to graduate in the same way um and and you see that actually it's not just in universities it's in organizations so the big you know the big consulting firms that many people will go into work in you know celebrate diversity of entrance all these different kinds of people coming into work and then they train them all to be the same consultant and so so one of the things i think that we can be and, and it's worth saying that lse is alert to this um is to kind of foster this sense of community whilst at the same time celebrating difference and that's a difficult challenge but it's one that LSE is alert to yeah what what how would you describe this mold both in the university and in sort of graduate jobs what what is required of students that might not necessarily work well there's a focus on individual attainment and potential and achievement be the best version of yourself um, much less emphasis placed on collective action on community on on doing things together um uh i think you know i mean actually interestingly lse lse's mission statement is actually set up very nicely actually to understand the cause it to for the betterment of society to understand the cause of things um and that's a good start because a lot of other higher education institutions particularly in north america have the advancement of the self as the you know central focus so in its mission statement lse is actually in principle set up very nicely to kind of create some of this community and diversity uh, that I've alluded to. But in reality... Um, well, what, in what, reality, yeah. I mean, you know, we, you, you, we have lots of clubs and societies that people join. I mean, a lot of it is in the social fabric of university life, I think. You know, some students from disadvantaged backgrounds come here and they just realise that they're different and they don't fit in. And, you know, part of succeeding at university is, of course, doing well in your degree, but also having a good time. And actually doing well in your degree is also, you know, you need to have a good time in order to do well in your degree. So if you feel a little socially isolated, then it's kind of not surprising that you do less well in attainment. So, um, as I say, it's it's doing more to, we're doing more to create a sense of belonging. I think that's really important and students recognise that, I think but doing more to celebrate the fact that you're different and it's okay to be different from the community to which you belong. Are there any instances, any examples of any place, whether it be a university or a, or a workplace or anything like that, who, who have done that really effectively? It's a good question. I think it's a state, I think it's in stages, right? I think that there's, so first of all, there's, I suppose, a realisation that, um, students from disadvantaged backgrounds are less likely to go to university that's a start and then there's a realization that they do less well when they get there that's the next step and then and then i think we're to the sort of third stage now which is okay how can we get them there then for to attain as well and also retain identity and a sense of self because it's not surprising then that some of the effects of education are quite weak on later life outcomes um, happiness for example because if you've had to sort of change who you are in order to fit in and succeed it's a sense in which you've lost something about yourself in that process and you might go on and get a great job and it might pay well but if you're constantly kind of feeling a little bit inauthentic or a, a bit of a fraud perhaps then that's going to play into your happiness so would there be anywhere in the world that has is nearer than than most other places 
sometimes there's a lot of randomness. We don't like randomness as an explanation for anything. <laughs> we always want you know, to understand the cause of things. Is kind of randomness doesn't isn't a cause in a you know substantive sense. And maybe sometimes to some degree, and I'm not trying to dismiss this as a, the 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 responsibility for this, but sometimes you know you could start off two universities could start off equally well, but one sort of gets a bad set of scores, one a good set of scores in terms of the NSS, for example. And then it becomes self-fulfilling and self-perpetuating. So so I go to a university that gets really good NSS scores. So I'm looking constantly for reasons why that's validated. Come to the LSE, which the whole world knows <laughs> did really badly. And now I'm constantly looking for validation as to why the LSE gets such bad NSS scores. Um, and so narratives, as I obviously talk about in Happy Ever After, the social construction of stories, plays through everywhere, it plays through in organisations and institutions as well. So once a once an institution gets a, a story told about its crapness, <laughs> then that becomes self-fulfilling. So um, there are things, of course, that LSE can do and is doing to, to change that story. But once a story gets established, it becomes a cultural identity almost. And it becomes very, very hard. Um, so, you know, substantively, things might not be any worse now. But in the reporting, they are because people are looking for it to be so. So this was the last episode of Underpulse for this uh, season. We hope to see you back next academic year and hope you enjoyed our company. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. It's, it's been real. Um, I've been Hayden. I've been Fleur. And this has been On The Pulse. So I think I mean, it's obviously, you know, we're sitting in a higher education institution. We're going to be talking about higher education. It's important that we remind ourselves, no matter, you know, I mean, even if increasing numbers of people are going into higher education, as is the case, still half of the British population don't go to university in the current cohort. So we really need to be paying much more attention to what happens to them and not seeing with this story that we create as university success, not going to university failure, because there's that's that's not true in terms of happiness data and of course it's certainly not true in some other outcomes but importantly I don't want to feel like people are forced or compelled to go to university because that's what's expected of them there's lots of people that would be you know that are perfectly happy you know and quite rightly so being plumbers and builders and chefs and and all the kinds of occupations that vocational training is much better suited for them and you know kind of not having to apologize or their parents that's that's important this a lot of this comes from the parents right parents expectations it'd be really interesting to see i mean I've, i think i've spent most of all, all of my life with all of my children's life they're 10 and 9 um you know living according to you know what i preach you know try to with them at least try to practice what i preach be interesting if when they get to 18 one or other of them turns around to me and says i'm not going to university will i still think that I hope so. I think I will. There's everything. There's everything in the evidence so far to suggest I will. But I don't want to be too overconfident because these narratives are so powerful. And having been through the university system myself, it's still really, really hard for me to recognise that that might not be the avenue for everybody.